Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And our topic today is one that I am, well, frankly, a little obsessed with. The Backstreet Boys? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be talking about the 2020 Democratic presidential contenders and what a surprising role education policy is playing in the debate. Surprising to you. But uh, but I think you know one place where you and I disagree is that um, it's really easy for presidential candidates to talk about education, and there is evidence that ever since George H. W. Bush declared himself the education president, uh, that presidential candidates have more and more talked about education as if it is something that they exert a great deal of control over uh, and have done so, I think, with some measure of success because you know, education, broadly speaking, is something that people are in favor of even if they disagree about particular details. That is one argument for why we're hearing so much about education. I personally do not think it is the correct argument. <laughs> So I'm going to play for you a clip of a candidate and take a listen and see if you can guess who it is. I'm a guy that believes in public education. And in fact, I look at some of the charter laws that are written around this country in states like this, and I find them really offensive. They're not about local communities finding solutions at work. They're about raiding public education uh, and hurting public schools. And that's something that is unacceptable. And for me, I will fight against We need to make sure that we focus on public education and strengthening public schools. So I recognize Cory Booker's voice there, and I also recognize his attempt to rebrand himself because Cory Booker was a big school choice advocate, and I think it was New York Magazine uh, that had a headline, Cory Booker has a school choice problem. Uh, shortly after he announced his candidacy for president, uh, that you know the rise of Betsy DeVos and her allies and the push for the choiciest forms of choice have made Cory Booker look like a member of the Republican Party with regard to his education policies. And so this seems like a, uh, a somewhat clumsy effort to, uh, to change the narrative around uh, his candidacy. So I would imagine that when Cory Booker was, was making plans to jump into the race, that he was not imagining that he was going to have to spend so much time traveling around small towns in rural Iowa, reassuring people that he believes in public education. And it's not just what you were talking about, Jack, that you know he has this past, and he's trying to rebrand himself. The other issue is that in the key primary states, they're all states that have really made a DeVosian turn, right? That they're led by Republicans. They're led by Republicans who have made a really drastic shift um, away from supporting public schools, even the public schools where their constituents live. Instead, they're rolling out voucher programs, they're rolling out plans for education savings accounts, and they're rolling out charter schools. And so for people who live in these states where big cuts were made to education spending after the Great Recession and choice was expanded 
as a way of defunding the public schools, they are asking these candidates all the time, what is your position on charter schools? You know, it's, I think we have a big problem in that the people who write and comment and punditize about education tend to all be in blue states, right? They're they're coastal elites like us, and they just assume that the bipartisan movement for education reform that's been so dominant in places like California and New York and Massachusetts is, you know, is also a thing in these other states. People are stunned when I tell them that, you know, when I go to Michigan, there's there's no defer in Michigan, right? That school choice and charter school expansion is a wholly owned subsidiary of the right. And that if you're a rural person, if you're a suburban mom, you know, I know that sounds really cheesy, but it means that for the last, you know, that your uh, elected officials have had nothing to offer you except for funding cuts and proposals to expand schools to compete with yours for, you know, in recent memory. But if I'm a presidential candidate, that's actually the kind of tough question that I'm really excited to get because, uh, you know, a question about climate change, right, puts me on the spot in terms of confirming the existence of the science or refuting it uh, and siding with, uh, you know, businesses who have funded unscientific studies. Um, I've got a stark choice there and I'm going to lose a part of my audience either way. Uh, I'm hopefully going to side with science here. But in education, um, nobody is against kids. Nobody is against learning. And so even though there will be tough questions about, let's say, charter schools, we've seen candidates like Bernie Sanders in the last uh, Democratic primary um, essentially dodge those questions. Uh, and you can dodge those questions and then fully embrace uh, 21st century skills and uh, you know young people who are prepared for college and career, that these are maxims that everyone embraces. And so I would expect uh, most of these candidates to be long on rhetoric and short on specific policy proposals. So, Jack, I think you are just intent on bursting my bubble. Whatever you say next, Jennifer, I am going to agree with. <laughs> so, make it a good one. Well, obviously, Cory Booker is not the only candidate who's been talking about education. Bernie Sanders unveiled an ambitious education platform. Here he is in Orangeburg, South Carolina, talking about his plan. And today, I am very proud to introduce my Thurgood Marshall plan for a quality public education all. And my plan addresses the serious crisis in our educational system by reducing racial and economic segregation in our public schools, make sure we attract the best and brightest young people to become teachers, reestablishes a positive learning environment for children in our K through 12 schools. In other words, this plan calls for a transformative investment in our children, our teachers, and our schools, and a fundamental rethinking of the unjust and inequitable funding of our public education system. 
So Sanders' plan got a ton of attention, but almost all of it focused on what he had to say about charter schools. But there was a lot more to his plan, including a pretty emphatic call to address school segregation. And I was really struck, having now lived through many presidential campaigns, I was thinking back, and I honestly can't recall a real full-throated cry to desegregate the schools. Being part of any presidential campaign in my memory, can you remember, Jack? Um, no, uh, I actually, uh, I knew you were going to ask this question, so I went and searched an archive of uh, presidential speeches, uh, and it includes some of the candidate debates, and it's not a search term that really returns a lot for you know, about the last 30 years. You've got to go back to Jimmy Carter before you find a president who's really seriously talking about action. Uh, you know, Obama comes up more than any other recent president if you do a search term uh, of, uh, you know, desegregation and school. Um, but really nothing as substantive as what Carter was talking about um, back in the late 1970s uh, through the Emergency School Aid Act offering flexibility in terms of the use of federal funding specifically for multi-year planning and implementation of desegregation plans. Well, while we have your archive at our disposal, by which I mean, of course, your brain, I'm hoping that you can help us out with something. People have probably heard about another Democratic presidential contender, that would be Joe Biden, being almost a crusader against using federal funds for school desegregation, specifically busing back in the day. I don't know this exact history, and I'm hoping that you do. In 1974, when Joe Biden... Uh, was a freshman senator from Delaware. Uh, he was confronted by parents at a meeting near Wilmington, Delaware, who were very upset at the possibility that their children would be bused into black schools and that black children would be bused into white schools. And at that meeting, Biden promised people that he would oppose busing when he went back to Washington. And he did. He spent the next four years uh, pushing legislation that would block the implementation of busing plans like the one that was uh, going to be rolled out in Wilmington and other places. And now, you know, here we are almost half a century later. And uh, it turns out that he was on the wrong side of history on that one. Well, one of my favorite things to do, Jack, is to sort of pop up and remind listeners that even though I'm not an education historian, I also know a thing or two about history. And you mentioned, you know, Jimmy <laughs> Carter and that, you know, that moment in time, that transition from Carter to Reagan was absolutely essential in understanding the trajectory of, of the Democratic Party and where a Joe Biden, you know, what they were so worried about. And there was really this anti-regulatory fever and that, you know, that sort of the, the sense that the regulatory state 
had become overwhelming and that the people were being bossed around and they were sick of it. And we don't think of busing in those terms, but that's very much, people did talk about it in those terms. And so Joe Biden comes out of a part of the Democratic Party that really viewed that as a as a warning, right? That if you pushed people too hard, if you made them do things they didn't want to do, like, you know, bus kids across town, that they would rise up and they would vote you out of office. And, you know, it's also worth talking about the president before um, Jimmy Carter, well, two presidents before, I suppose, uh, because Nixon really did a lot to roll back desegregation. And, you know, the same year that Biden had this meeting with Wilmington parents, 1974, that was the year that Milliken versus Bradley was decided in the Supreme Court. And the chief justice of the court, Warren Burger, who was a Nixon appointee, wrote the majority opinion that many people see as the kind of uh, final nail in the coffin for uh, you know court-ordered desegregation that began in 1954 with the first Brown decision. Um, this was a case that held essentially that Detroit could not uh, expand past its municipal borders to try to draw on other districts uh, for the the student diversity that Detroit would have needed to actually create uh, integrated schools. Okay, let's hear from another candidate who's been talking a lot about education on the campaign trail. This is Kamala Harris talking to teachers in South Carolina about what she is making a signature issue. But I decided let's start with teacher pay. And so why? Well, because again, I've met so many teachers who are working two, three jobs to pay the bills. In our country, 94% of teachers who teach in public schools are coming out of their own pocket to help pay for school supplies. You look around and you recognize that also we have a system, and let's have that conversation today or another time, about how upside down our system of funding school districts is in that so much of a school district's funding is based on the tax base of that community. And of course, that tells us logically that for those communities that have a low tax base, a low purchasing power, they will have the fewest resources, even though they are often the highest need communities. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is a topic that interests me greatly. Some would say that I am somewhat obsessed with it. And yet, as I was thinking about what we were going to talk about, I heard your voice in my ear sounding something like this, <laughs> reminding me <laughs> reminding me that really, you know, one way to look at all this, you know, frenetic campaigning on the part of the Democrats around education policy is that it's kind of a waste of time. The federal role in education is really pretty minimal. There on a lot of these issues, there just isn't much that they can do. Yeah, that's that's about right. I don't need to say anything. Well, so on the one hand, I get you know, that there's some truth to that, right? That that Kamala Harris can float a really ambitious plan around raising teacher pay, for example. And uh, she and Bernie... Bernie Sanders can lament the role of property taxes in you know, our unequal education system. But isn't there a valuable role just in raising those issues? We were just talking about desegregation. Just the fact that that they're you know pointing to these things is really, really important. Does there have to be a federal role 
for that to be the case? Policy scholars have taken on this question one of the important roles that they have discussed presidents as having in education is uh, you know maintaining a bully pulpit right so engaging in some agenda setting um, exerting pressure over uh, you know state legislatures governors uh, in some cases bringing states together so the common core uh, was not a federal project even though uh, a great deal of federal time and energy went into helping organize the National Governors Association which actually led that uh, initiative. Similarly, testing and accountability uh, was something initially pursued at the state level but uh, with strong federal encouragement. So George H.W. Bush organized the governors at Charlottesville in 1989 for a summit, and it was a young Arkansas governor who distinguished himself at that summit and then went on to unseat George H.W. Bush and drive the standards and accountability movement forward only to be replaced by the son uh, of his predecessor, George W. Bush, uh, who brought his state-level standards and accountability program from Texas to the federal level. So there certainly is a strong relationship between the presidency and education policy nationally, even if the president doesn't directly uh, create education policy. Okay, so Jack, I'll be the first to admit that when it's a policy item that I'm excited about, I'm much less concerned about federal overreach than when it's a policy that I don't agree with. <laughs> and but I wonder when you listen when you listen to Kamala Harris talk about her idea for raising teacher pay, are recent experiences with federal pushes to influence education policy have have had there've been a lot of problems and there's been some significant backlash. I think you could probably make a case that Common Core played at least some role in ushering the current occupant into the White House. Yeah, that's an interesting point because, you know, on the face of it, it would seem that a push for greater teacher pay would not produce the same kind of backlash as any involvement in the curriculum, right? So Common Core was not a curriculum. It was a set of remains, a set of curricular standards, uh, and it has a kind of logic to it, which is that you don't need to reinvent math 50 times across the states with regard to what students know and can do or should know and should be able to do. Um, same is true of other subject areas. But you can see that the history of local control over the curriculum, over what is taught to young people, would eventually produce some questions about why this is being nationalized and who has the power with regard to what students are being taught. On the face of it, teacher pay would seem to be different, but once we begin to unpack some of the complexities here, um, you know, I do worry about a kind of backlash there. So, you know, first of all, the question of per pupil expenditures. Um, you know, different states make different contributions to education. That has a lot to do with what they can then pay teachers. Um, if the federal government were to, uh, you know, set pay rates, for instance, that would have very powerful effects on state ability to control their own budgets with regard to education. Or take a different example, 
uh, the fact that the cost of living is very different, not just from state to state, but from locality to locality. And so how do you then ensure a kind of fairness with regard to teacher pay. I can see people who favor the free market saying that this is a kind of clumsy socialist bureaucracy trying to do what the market already does successfully. And so anybody who is trying to use the federal government to engage in any sort of national level policy effort in education really has to watch out for the criticism of overreach. Once again, everyone, that was Jack Schneider raining on our parade. (laughs) (laughs) We've been talking so far about K-12, but obviously higher education and specifically the issue of how young people are supposed to pay for it has been a major one so far this campaign season. I want to play a clip for you, Jack, of Pete Buttigieg. Did I pronounce that correctly? Can't you see him and Chastin driving around listening to Have You Heard? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with his uh, windows down and the, the cool breeze blowing through his perfectly quaffed hair. So I'm going to play a, a little clip from him. He was here in Massachusetts speaking at Tufts, and somebody asked him a question about free college. Here he is. Um, let me tell you why I'm stopping short of what I'm sure is probably the right answer politically in this room, uh, which is to just say that we can do away with those costs. Um, it's, it's not because I don't know how we're going to pay for it. It's because I do know how we're going to pay for it. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, Americans who have a college degree earn more on average than Americans who don't. And as a progressive, I have a hard time getting my head around the idea that uh, a majority who earn less because they didn't go to college would subsidize a minority uh, who earn more because they did all the way to 100%. I think some of that subsidy is justified because it's an investment in our whole future. But I think expecting somebody to pay zero uh, might go further than, than what's reasonable, especially if we have robust ways to get your student loans forgiven anyway, if you're willing to commit to some kind of public service or career in teaching. So uh, I know it's not the most popular answer, but hopefully it can be viewed as a reasonable one. So, Jack, when I when I heard that, I was really conflicted. On the one hand, I wanted to condemn him instantly as a neoliberal, which is my go-to. But on the other hand, you know, we've talked on this show before about the extent to which coastal elites, people like us, grossly overestimate the percentage of people in the US with a college degree, right? That it's it's only it's 30% and that that once again the policy solution comes from a place where everyone is going to go to college. Yeah, and you know, I think it's important given those statistics to then think through who's paying for what. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, making college free for people does lower the entry cost. But when we think about who is attending college right now, even despite the fact that for many low-income people, college is affordable because of financial aid. Now, there's a lot of uh, information barriers there, so many young people don't actually know that. They believe that the sticker price is the price that they're going to pay. Um, but you know, there are opportunities for low-income people to attend college in an affordable way right now. And that has still not produced the kinds of college attendance and graduation rates that we'd like to see. So one question is, 
is making college free going to substantially impact those rates? If it is, you know, then we have a case for a policy program that is possibly going to be very effective. Um, but if it isn't, then what you're effectively doing is subsidizing the middle class and the affluent who disproportionately make up uh, the uh, the pool of college attendees and college graduates. So the people who need the support the least would be getting it. And then we look at how this is going to be paid for, and this, of course, would be paid for with our tax dollars. Now, let me take the opposite side for just one second and say that the strongest support for social welfare programs tends to come for programs that everybody benefits from. And so if we look at Social Security, right, there's a program that everybody gets by and large and everybody pays for. And because of that, it has incredible political strength in terms of its uh, resilience against attack, right? It, it's been attacked over and over and over again. And Social Security has stood the test of time. Um, so there's another way of looking at this, and that is to say, you know, maybe the cost that we will bear as a society in terms of subsidizing uh, the college degrees of middle class and wealthy students, maybe that cost is worth it in terms of securing buy-in for free college for everybody else. Jack, I have been waiting for the entire episode for this portion of the show. It's the lightning round. As promised, I am going to play for you a clip of a candidate out on the trail, and I want you to see if you can guess who it is. And this candidate is not you. <laughs> you agreed to keep this a secret until I have time to <laughs> break big, it to my family. The big unveiling. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. so, so okay. I, won't, I won't guess you. Okay, take a listen. Do you think President Trump is a good role model? No, I don't. Why not? The way that... He conducts in the office and divides people, um, how he belittles people. That's not the example that you want out of a president. I mean, when we're expecting more of our preschoolers at times than a president, that that's not the role model that I think most families want for their kids. Any thoughts? Who is Eric Swalwell? I think a lot of people are asking that question right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, with his frosted buzz cut and his 38 years of experience on this planet? That was actually Montana Governor Steve Bullock. He was the 23rd Democratic contender to enter the race, and he's arguing that his ability to bridge political divides the way he's done in Montana will win over voters. And one of his signature issues back home has been outspoken support for public education and opposition to private school choice. He won re-election, by the way, in a state that Trump carried by 20 points. Well, Jack, I so enjoyed our campaign tour today. We visited Iowa, we stopped in to South Carolina, we dropped by New Hampshire, and of course, we hung out in Massachusetts. Those are the, those are the only states we went to. <laughs> that's, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. that's actually true. Well, I thought that for our special extended episode that we like to call In the Weeds, that's available for our Patreon subscribers, I thought that I would give a special preview of the trip that I'm about to take to Michigan. There is some really interesting stuff going on there that people on the ground are convinced 
are going to really are going to have an impact on the election that is really flying under the radar right now. What do you think about that? Do you want to come to Michigan with me? <laughs> uh, I'm scheduled to give a talk in Sydney, Australia, <laughs> this summer. Uh, so if I can fit Michigan into my schedule, I'll uh, I'll try to route my flight that way. I meant join me in the weeds, Jack. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you mean uh, luring people over the paywall to support the podcast. Uh, well, before we do that, let me remind people that there are lots of ways to support the show without compromising the numbers in your bank account. And uh, the best way of all is just to tell your friends, your colleagues, uh, your loved ones, and your coworkers just how great you think this show is. You can also go on wherever you get your podcasts and throw us some stars and maybe a review. Uh, and you can, of course, reach us on Twitter. The handle for the podcast is at Have You Heard Pod. And of course, if you would like to chip in a little and support us with a small donation every month, just go to patreon.com, search for Have You Heard, and you'll see some of the cool extras that you can get. We do an extended play episode called In the Weeds. We put a reading list together for you. The fun really doesn't stop. <laughs> well, the fun eventually does stop. But but yes, it's it it's quite fun. Actually, the fun is stopping now. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. 